Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Jessalyn Randall is a military wife living in Okinawa, Japan. Jess has struggled with her health for most of her life, dealing with extra body fat, anger issues, acne, anxiety, and mood swings, and in her own words, was simply a crazy person. When Jess's husband listened to and shared the episode of the Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Sean Baker, the famous episode that was my first introduction to the carnivore diet, it instantly made sense to her. Jess realized that she could take her health into her own hands and no longer needed to be a victim. Jess has now been on a strict carnivore diet since January of 2020, and her health has done a complete 180-degree turn for the better. The carnivore way of eating has solved many health issues that we mentioned before, and even helped with her gut health and chronic constipation. You can find Jess on YouTube at Carnivore Revolution and on Instagram at Jessalyn Randall, where she is the host of the Beyond the Meat series. Jess, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I made absolutely sure to say that this was in your own words that you were a crazy person. I was not going to come onto your introduction and introduce you as a car, as what I would call a crazy person. That's what you said. I didn't say it. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. And that made me laugh because it's funny to hear your own words back at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, right off the bat, I have to recommend that everybody go to those places to go follow you. As long as you're not driving, you're going to crash your car into something. Go to YouTube, go to Instagram. Your content, I absolutely love. It is very engaging. It's very triggering and it is hilarious. You don't really hold anything back and I absolutely love it. <laughs> I am so happy because it is, that is one of my goals is to have polarizing content where you either love it or hate it, because if you love it, you're going to engage. And if you hate it, you're going to engage. And that's the secret to social media is engagement. So polarizing is definitely been good to me. <laughs> yeah. I love that. You had me going too. I, I was I was like, ah, uh, she got me on that one. You started doing this one about uh, the, the insect protein and how good insect protein was. And you went to the very end and snap your hands and then nothing happened. I'm like, ah, that was, that was good. That was good. She got me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like those ones because it really shows because sometimes triggering, I don't just enjoy triggering the like leaf nibblers, but I enjoy triggering the meat eaters too. Um, because a lot of times when I do things like that, where the punchline is at the very end of the reel, people won't take the time to wait five seconds mm. to watch the whole thing. And they'll just start like blasting me in the comments about how good meat is. And I'm like, dude, I agree with you. Like, just watch the whole reel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked on that one. You definitely got my full attention for the entire video. So g congratulations. Great job. Um, in the introduction, we also mentioned you are a military wife. That sounds like a thing. Uh, can you tell me some attributes of a military wife? Uh, <laughs> normal military wives or... <laughs> Is there such a thing? Um, military, wives, uh, military wives don't always have the best... Um, uh, track record, I guess there's like military spouses in general. It's a very, uh, hard life to live. So their military wives in general are just kind of known to they're called, sometimes they're called like depend upon, I don't know. I don't remember, but like they're, they're dependas and they're known to like not work, be lazy, be overweight, um, and, uh, all these things. So it's, it's not always the best thing. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I would have thought yeah. the opposite. I would have thought like a military wife is somebody who's very resilient because they have to like, you know, keep up with somebody who's, you know, maybe training very hard, moving around the world and all these different places. I would have thought that would have been more of the connotation. Yeah, I think, well, the, the relationships, the marriages that last 
usually are, I would assume, like that. Uh, but a lot of there's a, a really high divorce rate in the military, as far as I know. Um, and people get married really young in the military, like 18 years old, so they can start getting um, uh, the money. I forget what it's called. Oh, my gosh. I'm in the military and I, I don't even remember what it's <laughs> called. But because when my husband and I got married, we got married at this just random courthouse in LA that we found that was the cheapest thing that we could find. He flew in for the weekend and we went and the lady was Russian and she had this really thick accent and my husband couldn't understand her. And she flat out, she flat out asked us, um, she was like, is this marriage for love or money? Cause like, cause military people will, they will get married just for the, for the BAH. That's what it's called. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but usually it, the marriages that do work are probably usually have like two very strong people, which is why I think that I do fit really well in with the military wife life of what I'm experiencing because I'm very independent. I do not have to, I'm not, one of those people that has to go out and be social and have a ton of friends. I can be alone for long periods of time and be just fine. Um, I can do things on my own. So I, I am adjusting or I did adjust to it very well because I am not extremely needy, I guess you could say. (laughs) Wow. Gotcha. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing the, uh, the memory of the ceremony. Those are always like the best memories, right? Like you had no money, you know, couldn't couldn't even like find oh. a venue like I forgot to say too so she asked us if it was for love or money and my husband my husband just nodded and so she's like is this marriage for love or money and he just nodded and I was sure like is. we love each other we, we love each other wow that is hilarious yeah thank you for sending that you mentioned the divorce rate and I, I wonder hearing your story and what you've had to go through in your life, I wonder if that would have been a more likely outcome for you based on how things were going, because you have gone through a lot health wise and a lot of it had to do with that, the kind of mental issues that a lot of people have. And a lot of people our age are on medications and all kinds of things to try to treat them, which very debatable whether those things work, but can you take us through your life, what it was like growing up, what things you had to suffer with and what that was like through your marriage? Yeah. uh, My childhood, I think probably when I was around six, I want to say I was pretty young. I just started having gut issues. And what that meant is that I was only going poop once every like three to four weeks. Like it was very few and far between, very painful. And I don't think my parents really knew the extent to to how bad it was because we didn't, it was the nineties. The we didn't talk about poop and stuff like that openly, which is um, I really appreciate society today, but there, there's some things where I'm like, we're taking it too far, but there's some things where I'm like, I'm so glad that that's a topic that we can talk about now. Um, and so I didn't really tell them what was going on and no one was teaching me that you were supposed to poop frequently. Um, that just wasn't a topic. So I literally thought that every single person was experiencing the same thing as me. So I thought I was just had to deal with it. And so I was just going to say before your story, I didn't even think that length of time was possible. That's crazy. Yeah. It was like, it was, yeah, I, I, it was a very long time ago, but I want to say that at least three weeks, like 
definitely three weeks in between me going to the bathroom. And, and sometimes <laughs> this is so gross. Sometimes, um, my, okay. My dad had to get a special toilet for me because I would clog the toilet because I it had so much shit in me that was coming out. That's amazing. And it, still, it still didn't click. Like they just thought I was taking huge dumps, I guess, but they didn't realize that like I wasn't taking dumps for weeks at a time. Um, so I had to get, he had to buy a special toilet because I kept clogging the toilet. So I wouldn't go poop in public ever because I was so scared I would clog a toilet. And then I was in theater a lot growing up. And before I would go on stage. I would get extremely nervous, but I enjoyed it because um, my nerves would make me go to the bathroom. So before every play I was ever in on opening night, I would get so nervous that I would go to the bathroom and I would lose like five pounds. Like I swear. Yeah, it was insane, but I loved it so much because I would feel so much better and I would have a great opening. (laughs) This is a boundless body radio exclusive. (laughs) This is hard cutting journalism right here. Yeah, but it yeah, so it was it was not fun. Um and it was embarrassing because if I did go to the bathroom, then of course it like smells and stuff. So um that it's just it was just awful and I was already insecure about my skin and different things like that, and just a t- being a teenage girl and being overweight and all these things. Um I just really did not like myself. Um, so yeah, the, the constipation was the major health issue and then have being constipated and having gut issues led into having a really bad immune system. And I was uh, sick all the time. So I would go to the doctor. No doctor ever asked me about like bowel movements or diet, things like that. They just would put me on a Z pack most of the time. So I would just go on antibiotics and then the sick, my sickness would go in like a week or two and then I would be fine. And then if I, I would be so sensitive to if it was hot outside and I walked into an air conditioned room, I would get a sore throat and then I would get sick. And so growing up, I had to I couldn't ever have my fan on. I lived at the second story of our house and my room was always like 75 degrees. Like if it was any colder than that, I would get the sniffles and get sick. Um, So I, yeah, I was so sensitive. My immune system was awful and doctors would just, they put me on weird fish oil pills and things like that. And uh, (laughs) it didn't help. They told me to eat more fiber. It didn't help things like that. And then when I was about 19 years old, I went to a homeopathic doctor and, uh, he put me on a cleanse, I guess you'd call it to where I only ate white meat, fish, and chicken for two weeks. And then after that, I was able to add in some rice. So just eating like the white meat, fish, and chicken, I cut out a bunch of sugar, a bunch of gluten and things like that. I lost 20 pounds in I think about a week or two weeks, something like that. It was so rapid because I was just so bloated and so full of shit that I lost 20 pounds so quickly. And um, then after that, I he didn't ever diagnose me with anything. I never got diagnosed with celiac or anything like that, but I just knew I cut out gluten and it helped a lot. So I'm never touching the stuff again. So at 19 years old, I realized that I should not be eating gluten. So I stopped 
And I did that for 10 years and, until I found carnivore and cutting out the gluten helped significantly, but I, it's, I still would get constipation because I was eating a ton of fiber. Um, I still had really bad acne. I still had really bad mood swings. Um, and, and so it helped a little, but I still wasn't there. And then when I got married, all those, I was still gluten-free, all of that. I was trying to eat healthy. We were working out all of the time. And those were just kind of the health problems that I was still going through was I, I had acne and I absolutely was so insecure because I was in my mid late twenties and still had acne. And it was so embarrassing. Like why that was supposed to be an issue that I was dealing with as a teenager, not as an adult. And I couldn't lose weight unless I would actually starve myself. And I didn't want to starve myself. And I was in the gym all the time. I had really bad mood swings to where I would get angry at the drop of a hat over something really stupid. And then carnivore came along. And again, I lost weight really, really quickly. The first month, I think I lost about 20 pounds again, the first month and my gut healed so quickly my skin healed. Um, I don't remember exactly how long, and I still do have like a little bit of skin issues, but it's nowhere near how bad it was before. So I am happy. So happy with how my skin looks. So my skin healed, my gut healed, my mood balanced out and all basically everything I was dealing with, what got, got resolved with carnivore. That's incredible. What an amazing story. Going back to when you were treating all these separate problems, I think once you've done carnivore yourself or you've coached enough people through the carnivore diet, you hear all of those different things, but they're not different things. It's all just one thing. If you get the wrong foods out and the right foods in, that list, that laundry list that you went down of all these different separate things, they're all going to self-correct. There's no problem. That's that's fine. It's all really just kind of one thing. Before the carnivore diet, even with the more natural doctors that you were seeing, did was it ever like one thing related to one thing besides the gluten? Or was it always like you're chasing down separate problems or going to separate experts for separate things that you were dealing with? From what I remember, I went to different people, different doctors, and I very quickly learned to distrust doctors growing up because they never helped me. They were always kind of just rude. Um, so I, I very quickly learned that I did not like doctors. So it, I'm pretty sure my mom had to convince me to go to the homeopathic guy when I was 19. And she said that she heard such good things about him. And I was like, I don't want to go. I don't trust doctors. I don't trust doctors. And thank goodness I did. Cause it led me on the path to nutrition being connected to, to things, but, um, to your health and stuff. But uh, I, from what I remember when I was a kid, my mom would take me to different doctors. I don't remember them, them telling me anything. I don't remember them telling me how things are connected or telling me, asking me about my diet or the importance of that or anything like that. I, I, all I remember is going into doctor's offices and kind of saying, my mom kind of explaining to like, she gets sick all the time. Um, she has skin issues, blah, blah, blah. And just kind of telling them what I was feeling and then them giving me pills. That's all I remember. I don't remember like conversations about anything or, and even with the dermatologist, I went to, I went to the dermatologist and I did 
everything under the sun, basically that you can do for skin. Like if you saw my dermatologist packet, it was so thick of everything they were giving me. And I, I tried everything from Dove soap to Accutane um, for the longest amount of time that you can do. And they put me on birth control, birth control didn't work. So they put me on Accutane. Um, and I tried, I, I'm pretty, they threw everything at me. Nothing ever helped my skin. Accutane made my skin way worse. And I hated it so much. It just, cause it, it's can dry out your skin really bad. So I got so, such dry skin to where it looked like I had a beard basically. Cause my skin was flaking off so bad that I was just walking around and I was in high school. I was just walking around with just like flaky, gross, dry skin. I was overweight. Um, I was convinced that no guy would ever find me attractive. Um, so I just hated myself because of that. And yeah, none of this stuff ever worked. So uh, I think that I'm, I'm giving such long-winded answers. I'm sorry. No, that's why we invited you on. That sounds extremely traumatic. Like most people might yeah. think like, oh, white girl, she's got some pimples like in high school, like for a 16 year old girl, that's serious. That's some heavy trauma. Yeah. I, and I had acne since middle school. So it wasn't, I got acne. Uh, I think when I started sixth grade or something like that, I got acne before anybody else. And cause you know, I think I probably had that thing where kids develop really quickly. Cause, uh, cause I got, I, you can look at my pictures of when I was a kid and I was this cute little blonde girl that looked like Alice in Wonderland. And then all of a sudden I'm just like blew up and I just get fat at, like in one year. And then after that, I'm just like the carb, the carb bloat. I just have the carb bloat for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so you, you can see where it hits. And then I just start having acne and no one else my age, I blew up and everyone else was still these like tiny little children. And I was chubby. I had acne. Uh, I, so that kind of did help me though, in retrospect, because I had to develop a personality (laughs) (laughs) because I wasn't, I wasn't the cute girl. I wasn't the skinny girl. So I had to be funny and I had to be, uh, I had to be resilient because people would, would make fun of me and I had to pretend like it didn't hurt my feelings, which it also, I think helps me now in retrospect. (laughs) So, so there's, (laughs) it was traumatic there. Uh, it was a traumatic experience having to deal with that stuff, but there are some positives that have come out. (laughs) It's always nice to look back and know that the darkest times, you know, they, they did teach us lessons that were really important later on. They just, while you're going through them are absolutely miserable. I know you mentioned in the past, you also did a contest at some point. Um, I think around the time where you were like 1920. So you mentioned starving yourself and now all of a sudden it sounds like you're getting these associations that to lose weight, I have to starve myself. And I know that that led to you, maybe not full on, but kind of flirting with different eating disorders. Can you describe what that was like? Yeah. Um, I remember in high school, I mean, yeah, in the nineties too, like everyone was super skinny, but I absolutely do not blame like magazine covers for, for eating disorders and things like that. And me, um, I, cause I never, I never looked at a magazine cover and said, I want to be that girl. I would look at it and I'd be like, I'm not supposed to be fat. Like I, it would be like, it, my mindset would be like, I'm not supposed to be fat. It wasn't like, I want to be her. I'm jealous of her. Um, and I knew that and the whole stigma too, was just 
those girls starve themselves. And then I've, of course, I'd seen pictures of girls who were anorexic, who were extremely skinny. So I just knew that if I stopped eating or if I ate a very small amount, I would get skinny. Like it was just made sense to me, like A plus B equals C. If I didn't eat, I would get skinny. So I, in high school, I just tried to starve myself. My, my, uh, parents caught on pretty quickly and they would watch me eat to make sure I was eating. And then after that, I tried to be, or I started throwing up after meals. And then I quickly realized that throwing up will rot your teeth and my teeth and my smile were one of the only things I liked about myself. So I stopped doing that. And after that, I didn't really know what to do. So I was just kind of in this spiral and just depressed. And then I would kind of just like yo-yo to where I would only, I would like restrict my calories a lot to get skinny. And then I would, couldn't sustain that. So then I would gain weight back and then I would restrict calories a lot. So if I ever had an event or something coming up where I wanted to look skinnier, I would do for like a a few weeks, I would just eat very, very low calories. So I would lose weight and then I would eat normal again. And then I would eat very low calories. So yeah, I did, I guess I never realized that that was disordered eating either until I, until I entered like the carnivore community and started learning more about it. I never thought I had any sort of disordered eating. I thought I was just normal, like a normal person, which I think probably is sad, but that probably is normal, especially for women, um, like teenage girls. Uh, but yeah, I never realized I had a disordered eating. I just was like, I'm not supposed to be fat. And if you eat less, you get skinny. So I'm going to eat less. And yeah. And then I did the competition, the NPC competition when I was 19, because I had just stopped gluten. So I lost all that weight. I was feeling really confident in myself. I was like, yeah, I'm 19. I'm finally like turned a new leaf. I'm, I'm like skinny. I was like in my head, I was like, I'm skinny now. Yeah. I'm confident. And this lady at the gym I was going to, she would always approach me saying, you would be great at NPC. You would be great at NPC. And I was like, no, no, no. And then one day I was like, you know what? I'm young YOLO. I'm going to do it. So I, I signed up for it. And then she put me on this insane diet of tilapia and seven, one piece of tilapia and seven pieces, seven stalks or whatever you call it of asparagus, uh, two times a day, I believe it was. Oh my goodness. And so, so I was eating that. I ate that for two months and, (laughs) and I, I was very, yeah, I've always been, so my whole life too, since I, since I, I was a kid and I started these like weird, like crash diets and stuff. I was always really good at sticking with a diet. If I decided to do something like I, if I did an apple fast or something like I would, and I would randomly just eat apples for three days because I read somewhere that it's good for your skin. And if you have acne, it'll like clear your skin. So every, every couple months I would just do apple fast for three days and eat nothing but apples. (laughs) And I was always, I was always good at like, if I decided to do a diet, I would stick with it and I wouldn't cheat. I never had like these cheat meals. I never had a desire to have, um, or like these insane sugar cravings and things like that. So when I did the NPC competitions and she put me on this diet, I stuck with it for two months. And that's literally all I ate two times a day for two months straight. And I got so skinny and so malnourished. And then my parents, 
I was, I did two competitions. And then my, after that, my parents said, you, you're not doing this anymore. You look so malnourished. This wow. is not healthy. Wow. And I, so I stopped. Yeah. If you ever <clears throat> wanted to become a breathitarian, I believe you would probably be able to, to, to like actually achieve that based on your level of dedication. Okay. So, so fast forward then your husband listens to this episode with this crazy doctor who's eating nothing but ribeyes and is smoking people in, uh, you know, deadlifts and in rowing competitions. What on earth about that at like, like interview did he think would be a very good idea for you? You've already had issues with restriction of food. This is like the most restricted thing you can do. At least that's the way it sounds. Why did he think that would be a good idea for you? I don't think that, I don't think that he, cause I, so I wasn't like, I was normal. Like I was a normal person. I wasn't like restricting and I didn't look anorexic or anything like that. And which is why I say I tried to be anorexic or I tried to be bulimic because I never really, um, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that's the wrong thing to say, but like, I, I was eating like a normal female, which is so sad that that's how females normally eat. Um, so I, I was eating very small amounts of food and like oatmeal and salads and things like that. So no one ever thought I had disordered eating. And I didn't even think I had disordered eating because I was eating like every other early 20 year old girl or in your twenties girl, you know? Um, so I don't think he really realized that that diet could have been, or the restriction aspect of me restricting now and carnivore is very restrictive. So I don't think anyone put those two things together because yeah, I was just eating normal, like what, what you're supposed to eat, what you're told to eat that is healthy. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And you know, once you're in the carnivore world, you realize it is the least restrictive thing that you've ever done. We found that for my wife, she struggled with an eating disorder. And so carnivore, it's like, okay, well now you're only eating like three different foods or four different foods or whatever the number is. But when you are eating pounds of meat and getting fully satiated and feeling great and having awesome energy and, and, and dealing with all those other things you mentioned, the gut issues go away. The skin issues get better. Your tolerance to the sun improves. You can maintain muscle mass way easier. It's like, it is, is absolutely not restrictive in the least, but it just, it has that kind of look to it from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on paper, of course it is restrictive. I don't ever get like triggered or anything when people say it's restrictive. Cause like by definition, you are restricting things. Um, so it makes sense to, to say that it's restrictive, but just like emotionally and psychologically, it's not restrictive. Yeah. It, it's very freeing, but, yeah. but um, like literally, yeah, you're not eating sugar and, and all these things. Um, but I, and I, yeah, I had a history of like restricting different things. Like when I stopped gluten, like that was restrictive. I wasn't eating gluten, but I, there was no way that I was going back to how bad my constipation was before. So when I realized that gluten was triggering that in some way, I cut it out and I never touched the stuff again where people, I did it for 10 years. I stopped gluten. Well, it's been more now because I haven't eaten gluten since carnivore too. So over 13 years now. Um, but like once I, once I realized, like, I've always been that way with food where like, once I realized that something is not beneficial to me, I have no problem cutting it out of my life. So gluten by, I didn't have any cheat meals for 10 years. If I ever touched gluten, it was because it was unintentional. And I didn't realize there was, they snuck gluten in something because they like to sneak gluten into Bastards. everything. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, once I realized, um, 
once I realize that something isn't good for me, I have no problem saying goodbye to it. And I have no emotional connect ties to any sort of food to where I, I crave it or I need it or, or something. If it's not benefiting me, See ya. Yeah. You know, Gary Taubes writes about that in the case for keto, where it's like, if you go to somebody on the street and say, you can't have corn, people say like, that's impossible. Like I I can't go the rest of my life without corn. Well, for Gary, he's got a corn sensitivity. And if he has a little bit of corn, he gets very, very sick for him to Mm -hmm. never eat corn is not a sacrifice. It's not very difficult for him just to say, okay, well, do I want to feel like dog shit or do I want to feel great? And if I want to feel great, then I can never eat corn. And it's not really, it's not really a question. It's not really like a sacrifice. Like, it sounds like for, for everybody else out there. Yeah. That's like, I always thought that when I was gluten-free of people try to give me things with gluten, they're like, Oh, it's worth it. It's, this is worth it. Trust me. And in my head, I'm like, nothing's worth having, like feeling like you're literally giving birth every few weeks because you're just so full of shit. Like nothing is worth that. I don't care if it's the best tasting food on the planet. I'm not putting that in my mouth because my body does not like that stuff. So it's, that's a yeah, I love that perspective. It's not a sacrifice for me to cut out these things. Like I am, it, it's better for me to cut out these things. Like be, we're different people, you know. Like if you want to eat that, you can't. I'm not going to eat yeah. that. And just because I choose not to, doesn't mean I'm judging you. Which is another weird thing with carnivore. If like where people when you when you eat this way, it, you, they kind of act like how when people don't drink alcohol and and the people who do drink alcohol, they they get defensive. Like, Oh, you don't drink alcohol. You must think you're so much better than me. And it's like, no, I just don't drink alcohol because I don't want to. And carnivores like that too. It's like, Oh, you want to eat meat? Yeah. You must think you're just so much better than us. And it's like, no, I, I just want to eat meat because I feel amazing. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It's totally different. I think it triggers a lot of people. And yeah, for me, same like sugar, sugar gives me anxiety. I don't like to feel anxiety. I will never have sugar. That's it. It's, it's, you know, done essentially. Okay. So you learn about carnivore. You're on board. It sounds like from the very beginning, did you have any reservations about the diet? Um, any second thoughts? I, so of course, when I watched it, I, it went against everything I'd ever been taught, but I don't know. I think it was just my time to hear it (laughs) because I don't remember being really concerned at all. I just, I listened to it. He was very rational. He made a lot of sense. And I just knew that what I was doing wasn't working. So I obviously needed to try something else because doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result never goes well, as we know. So I was doing the same thing that I had been doing since I was a teenager. And I was just ending up in the same circle of crash diet, gain weight, crash diet, gain weight. So I was absolutely ready to just try something new and give it a shot. And 30 days didn't seem that daunting because I'd been doing, I did other weird diets for months at a time, you know? So my husband and I decided to do try carnivore for world carnivore month. And we did it together for 30 days. And then after that, I was sold. I, it was amazing. I got amazing results from it and I never want to eat differently now. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, it's amazing that this exact episode is going to drop in world carnivore month. So that's a nice little carniversary present. Um, so I was going to ask you, it sounds like you're pretty sold on the diet, but what, um, let's see what practically was difficult about the diet or was it really easy practically to shop for the foods you wanted and cook up the foods you wanted? Like what did you struggle with anything practically in the beginning? I struggled. We didn't struggle with getting the meat or 
understanding how the diet worked. We, we both understood, okay, you eat meat. So we went to the store and we bought a bunch of meat. So, so we both um, understood that. But what I struggled with is eating red meat, especially fatty steaks, because my dad growing up, my dad had gout and he was told that he couldn't eat red meat. So we only had fish and chicken um, in, in my house. So I was not, and then hamburgers, if we ate red meat, but I was not used to eating steaks. So when we got these big fatty ribeyes, I had a really hard time eating the fat and the fat would gross me out and I would cut it off and I'd give it to my husband. And eventually he said, Hey, I can't do this anymore. You need to learn how to eat the fat because the fat is really important. Um, so, and then I started researching more about fat and how I'm not eating carbs anymore. So I need the fat for energy. And it made sense to me. I'm like, okay, I need to do, I need to eat this fat. So once I realized that it's good for me and I need to eat it, I was like, I took like steps to, to make it easier for myself to eat where I would eat my steak strategically and I would cut off all the fat in the beginning and then cut off the good pieces of steak and I would pair them together and then eat them until I slowly got used to eating fat. Um, so I would do, I did that. And then, um, I would also in the beginning, I would use ketchup still and a one to kind of like until I got used to the taste of meat. And now I just use salt to season my food and I love fatty meat. So your taste buds do change on this diet. Um, but yeah, so that was the biggest, that was the hardest thing for me during the transition was learning to like fatty meat. Yeah. That is a really common thing. I think all of us see that out there. Like people come into this way of eating and yeah, maybe they are a little bit on the leaner side. They're used to eating chicken and tilapia and that kind of thing. And they're just, you know, kind of cutting out the other foods and maybe don't have a taste for red meat. But once you start to acquire that and the fattiness and the savoriness, it really comes on hard. And I don't know many people that have done carnivore for very long that don't like just attack red meat. Like the other stuff is cool. Nice little condiments here and there is fine, but it's the red meat that is where you really want to go. Speaking of condiments, you just said that you were using condiments and spices before, and now you don't. Did removing them for you make a big difference or not really from what you could tell? Yeah. Removing, obviously the ketchup and stuff is just, I was just putting sugar on my steak. Um, and then a one, um, I was never a huge fan of a one, but I liked it more than just eating the steak by itself. So, so once I got a taste for meat though, I was fine cutting a one out. Um, and then after I cut out the sauces, I would still use salt and pepper and like garlic and things like that. And then eventually I realized we, we have this restaurant that um, we go to that's called Yakiniku, that's Japanese barbecue. And they have some, some meats that have garlic on them. And after we would be finished eating at Yakiniku, I would just feel so bloated and uncomfortable. And I'd be like, why am I feeling bloated? I, I just ate meat. Like what is going on? And I realized, oh, it's what they're putting on the meat. It's not the meat. So then I would, only, now I only get the, the meat without sauce, without anything. And I feel fine. So I, I realized that garlic made me uh, really bloated and uncomfortable when I eat it. So I don't eat that anymore with pepper. Um, I don't know if I actually have a negative reaction to pepper, but the reason I cut it out of my diet is because we ran out of it in our house and we just never bought more. Uh, so <laughs> we, we just never, we didn't miss it very much, I guess. Um, so, so now we just use salt. Uh, so yes, some, some things specifically do upset me and the, the biggest one is garlic. 
Gotcha. I really appreciate that answer. When I'm coaching somebody on a carnivore diet, I'll often get asked about condiments and spices. And I understand there's people out there that do have to be very strict. Somebody like Dr. Chafee, who you've been on his wonderful show and been interviewed by him. Like he describes having, you know, lamb that had spice and like the next day he was like completely depressed. And so that's somebody who has to be very, very strict. And I kind of think like, well, it's condiment as long as you're choosing like low sugar ones. It's such a small percentage of the diet. Like there could be some net benefit if it is, like you said, like, helping you like acquire the taste for red meat or eat a higher volume. I, I see some benefit there, but yeah, it's interesting to hear your point of view and just knowing that eventually that was something you cut out and it wasn't as difficult for you to cut it out. You didn't really miss it. No, definitely. I, it's very, I think very logically about food to where once I understand that something is harming me and it's not benefiting me, I have no issue cutting it out, which is why I always like suggest to people at least if they think the way that I do that when, um, the, the, when you're starting the carnivore diet, it's really important to research and understand why these things are bad, because I can sit here and tell you cut out seed oils, cut out processed foods. But if you don't understand why you need to cut those things out of your life, you're not going to stick with the diet. You're just going to, it's just going to be someone telling you, Hey, cut these things out. And then you're going to try it. And then when you get a craving for sugar, you're going to eat some sugar. But if you, uh, at least from my perspective, when I learned what sugar does to me or what alcohol does to me, I was like, oh, I don't want to eat that. Why would I eat that? That's I'm poisoning my body. Um, so, so I always tell people to research and look into the why behind the diet, because then you'll actually have more motivation to stick with it when those cravings and stuff start to come. Um, and alcohol was a big one for me because I drank a lot of alcohol before carnivore. I to the point where some people genuinely thought I was an alcoholic. I was drinking at least a bottle of wine on my own every single night. Mm. Um, so I was drinking a lot of alcohol. And then when I think Judy Cho's book, Carnivore Cure, I'm, I believe that was the book that put me off alcohol <laughs> um, because she explains uh, like what it's doing inside of you and, and what's wrong with it and things like that. If I remember correctly. Um, and then after that, I, I, I have not really had alcohol since I, I think once on new year's, uh, we had alcohol and just like here and there it'll, and it'll be, and I'll make sure to have like hard alcohol, not wine or things like that. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, thank you for sharing that. It, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting to hear how everybody kind of goes through that, but, but it's important to remember that you, you are, you are the, the reward that you're going to get after that. Your life improvement, your life quality is going to feed those decisions. And it's like, you're the only one that lives in your body. So if you're not eliminating those things and you're including them, you don't know how good you could feel. And it might be totally worth it for you to cut it out. So, so when you started carnivore, it was to help you with your digestion. You wanted to lose some weight. Some of the other things we mentioned, what things were the most expected results and what things were completely unexpected results that, that you didn't think you would get? the biggest reason that I wanted to try carnivore is I wanted to lose weight that, and that was my obsession since I was younger was I knew I wasn't supposed to be fat. Um, and so I initially did it to lose weight. I didn't really understand the impact that it would have on my gut or that it would have such a huge impact on my gut. And so that was surprising, very and good surprise. And 
my mental health. That was probably, so I did lose weight um, as expected, but the unexpected thing is the impact on my mental health to where it like chilled me out. Um, I was, like I said before, and you quoted me, I was a crazy person and growing up in my house and just my side of the family, like the, the Dolph side of the family is kind of just known for being, um, more bipolar type attitudes to where we get very angry at the drop of a hat or like you're, I'm very happy and then extremely angry. Um, so I, and I grew up with, with that to where, um, my parents were just fighting all of the time and <laughs> which that did also didn't, um, help my marriage very much because I, and I, cause I thought communication was just fighting. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in a house where, where they were just fighting all the time and just angry. And I had really bad mood issues. Um, and I thought it was genetic. And then with carnivore, it chilled me out a lot. I'm still not perfect. Um, so there might be some genetic aspect to it, but it's helped like 80%, I would say of my, of my mood issues. And I'm able to control myself now better. I'm able to control myself better now. Um, because before, if, if something would make me angry, it would like bubble up inside of me. And I felt like I wasn't in control. Like I felt like I, I like it just came out of me, like just something inside me just would come out of me and be angry. And then when, when it was out and I was like left with like whatever I created, I would be like, why did I do that? And I felt like I had no control over my actions, like, which is, which is a crazy thing to say because you do have control over over your action, your actions. But I literally felt like I was not in control when I would like react this way. Um, and carnivore really helped with that to where now I'm able to control myself a lot better and I'm still learning, um, how to control myself better. But it, yeah, like I said, it's helped probably like 80% of my mood issues. That was me too. I wouldn't have ever described myself as having mood issues, but like stressful things, you're right. You wouldn't be able to control. You would have some type of reaction and, and usually look back and say, well, that I shouldn't have had that reaction. I damaged a relationship or a friendship or something like I could have, I could have handled that differently. And it just seems to be a lot easier easier on carnivore. And we've talked about the science and gone in pretty deep on why that would be the case. But if somebody is listening to this and hearing you say like, she's only eating meat and now she feels better. What the hell does that have to do with anything based on your current understanding? What would you explain to somebody why your brain is working better now? I would say that my brain is finally nourished. And that because before I was eating a very low fat diet, I was eating, um, lots of salad, oatmeal, lean meat. I, I did not, I never ate bacon. Um, I, so I, I was not eating, I never ate fatty meat, like I said. Um, so, so my brain was just like starving and not working properly. And your brain needs that fat to, and you need cholesterol <laughs> to, to have like your hormones balanced and things like that. So, um, I, I would just say that I'm nourished now. So my brain can work properly. And, um, before, before it's just like, I wasn't getting, I think I like the analogy of like the fuel in the car. I, I wasn't putting the right fuel in my car and my car was acting all weird. And now I have the right fuel and I'm just cruising. <laughs> I love that. That's a great explanation and a really good analogy that I think would help people understand why that happens. So awesome. Okay. I've got some specific questions for you about Okinawa. Um, how long have you been living on the island? 
A little over a year. I got here last December. Okay, gotcha. So over a year, you've got good experience there. Would you say like, like you've been able to check out a good amount of the island and observe people doing like living their normal life? Like not just, you know, I, I know you guys, you don't live on the base, right? Mm-mm. You get to live off the base. Are you in the Japanese culture, would you say? Like, are you with locals? I do live, uh, my, a lot of my neighbors are Japanese, uh, but they do a very, my husband and I have talked about this before. They do a very good job of keeping their culture separate <laughs> from the military presence that's here. Um, at least from our experience, uh, they like, and not a lot of people speak English here too, which is really surprising. That is. They, um, people have like enough understanding just from being around so many Americans that you can kind of get by, but there's so many, uh, Japanese people here that ha- do not know any English, which we think is pretty cool that they're, that they have been able to just keep their culture so separate with just such a huge American presence. Um, but yeah, I am in my, I do have a lot of Japanese neighbors, but there are some Americans scattered around here too. Gotcha. Okay. So we just hosted Belinda Fetke for the second time where we took a deep dive into the blue zones, but I've never been there. She's never been there to my knowledge. You are boots on the ground. You've been there for over a year. You've been able to observe things. First of all, blue zone, this is an area of the world that has been identified as having more centenarians than, than other places on the world. So first, first question, do you see a lot of old people in Japan walking around everywhere? Yes, you do. And they do not, they do eat a lot of meat here too. I don't, I, as far as I know, there's not a lot of like vegetarians and, and vegans and things. They do eat a lot of meat, but Okinawa, the culture here, it is, and it's so different than Japan. Like if you go to mainland Japan, it's like two completely different countries. Um, the culture here is so much more chill. Um, so I think that plays a role into it. I think there's like so much more that goes into the blue zones other than just like they're specifically what they're eating. Um, but there, you do see a lot of old people, the culture, everyone's so nice here and it's chill and you're on an island. Um, and, and everyone's really active. Um, so you're always seeing people walking or, um, around cause it's not a huge island. Like, um, our, the Starbucks that we go to is half a mile down our, from our house. So we'll walk there or bike there. And you're just, you constantly see people biking around or walking um, down the street or outside cleaning the street. Like they'll just be like little Japanese men basically sitting in the street, sweeping up leaves and stuff like that. And that's not their job. That's just, they just like care about their, their country. You know, there's no trash here. Um, people are respectful. People are kind. Um, so I think that just my, my assumption would just be like their lifestyle is so much different than so many other places. And, um, and they also have a huge family, um, orientation here as far as, as far as I've seen, like family is so important. We're like, they're always together. Or my husband and I went to um, this museum a couple months ago, like a World War II museum. And there's just this huge grass area out front. And there was hundreds of families. It was like a Wednesday afternoon. And there was hundreds of families with all their kids. And they had like butterfly nets and they were running around catching butterflies and like playing sports with their kids. So it was, it, and I've, I've said this before too, where 
Okinawa feels like how America felt in the early 90s or before 9-11. Like just like chill and family and life was good. And um, that's how it feels here. Where um, And yeah, it feels pre-9-11 here. <laughs> so that, another wonderful. Point is, yeah, <laughs> but sounds- not... Wow. Yeah, that Sorry. sounds wonderful. No, you're great. It, so so on the Blue Zones website, when you go and look up Okinawa, it talks about all of that. The first thing that it recommends to you know live like Okinawans is to have an ikigai or a sense of purpose um, in your life. And it talks about how families are very important and they are very active and you should start a garden. But the number two thing that they recommend is a plant-based diet. Now, they recommend a plant-based diet and they say that most people, especially the, the um, centenarians who have lived past 100, they in particular are, are specifically choosing to eat plant-based diets and severely restrict meat in their diets. Is that something you've observed? No, I haven't. I've, I've, I haven't. I've seen a lot of people eating meat. Um, and especially when we go out to restaurants and stuff, like I, it's, I don't think I've, I know of a couple vegan people here that are Japanese and they're vegan, but for the most part, from what I've seen, everyone eats a lot of meat here. Um, so I, and I don't know, maybe I just can't read the Japanese, but I've never seen a lot of, um, vegan or vegetarian promotion. Um, I've seen, two restaurants that have vegan options on the menu, but there it says it in English. So I'm assuming that's for American patrons. And then there's one grocery store that I've seen that has like beyond type meat. It's not the brand beyond Meat, but it's plant-based meat in a tiny little section in the freezer. So, um, it's not extremely prominent here from what I've seen. Um, yeah, I, I would say they eat a lot of meat, yeah. Okay, okay. I appreciate that observation. We're going to talk about the Blue Zones diet here in a second, the recommended amount. This was from, oh, you know those websites that have like health articles that are like probably, there's links, but it's probably not based on any type of science, like the Healthline or something like that or whatever. So they did a summary of the Okinawan diet and what people eat while they're there. I'm just going to read these to you. And again, just from observation, is this, you You could be able to tell if this was like ballpark park. Okay. Okay. So according to this, and I didn't chase the source, but according to this page, they eat a a 58 to 60% vegetables. So that's a pretty tight window. First of all, grains in their diet comprise 33% of the diet. Soy products comprise about 5% of the diet. Meat and seafood is one to 2% of the diet and other, the category other, which I think is like tea and coffee and alcohol is 1%. Again, large population. You're walking around. You're seeing people like ballpark close. Um, I don't think that there. I see that much vegetables. Even if you go to the store uh, and you walk in, you have that little produce area. But then you have they have like a whole fresh fish area in the back, and there's always really good sashimi. Um, and they do have a tiny little meat section, though, at that grocery store. But yeah, no, I would say they eat a lot of meat here. The carb one, I would I would have switched the carbs and the vegetables um, because they do eat a lot of carbs. Like when you do walk into the grocery store, um, there you have the little produce area. And then just like every normal grocery store, um, the whole middle section is just carbs. And so you do see a lot of people and they... Um, they really like 
the the prepackaged meals here. So there, those are everywhere. And there's a little stand by our house that's so busy every morning um, where it's like these rice meatballs um, where they go and get them and then they have that for lunch or something like that. So it's like these rice meat type bowls that are just everywhere here. Um, so I would, I would assume I assumed that they're eating mostly meat and carbs and then with some vegetables, yeah. but um, vegetables being prominent, I wouldn't say that. I don't really see veg even on menus and stuff, they don't highlight the vegetable options. Mm. It's just like they're available, but it's not like highlighted or in your face or anything. The meat is always like the star. Wow. So yeah, 58 to 60%, that would be substantial. And I don't know wh- how that's calculated by volume or by calories or what, but like either way, that would be a huge volume of vegetables because there's not very many calories in vegetables. It, they would be everywhere. I would assume if they were even close to that ballpark. Um, Let's see. I also wanted to ask about the meat. Do they, you said it's, it's kind of special there. Is that correct? Like they, they prize it the most. Uh, the, so from what I'm aware of the, the pork here is they're really proud of the pork. I'm pretty sure there's an Island around here where they raise their own pork or maybe they have only cows there. I don't know, but they're, um, they're, the pork here is really, really good though. It's like the best pork I've ever had in my life. So yeah, as far as I've seen, Okinawans eat a lot of meat um, and they like their pork. So yeah. that's what I've seen. Interesting. And the pork is really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very jealous. I've heard that from multiple sources that the pork in that part of the world is amazing. I've heard a, um, a podcast interview. I don't know who the author was, but it was a book called the Okinawa diet. And he is a proponent of a plant-based diet. And even he in this interview was saying like, like you should have lots of vegetables. You should have soy products. Meat should be only used occasionally, but he even acknowledged the meat is the prize. You only get meat when there's a celebration or something amazing is happening. And so it's like, if, if meat is so important to celebrations, don't you think that would be the prized food every single day for more people? Yeah. I don't the, just even cause I was nervous moving here, um, that, that I wouldn't have a lot of options of food, but just if you drive down the street, there's steakhouses, Japanese barbecue, um, curry there, like every restaurant is like meat focused. So I like, I, I think they, I don't know. I, I, cause like, and I don't speak Japanese, so I, I'm not extremely immersed into the culture, but there's a lot of meat here. So I, I don't know. I think they're, I think they're eating meat. Um, and it, it's not hard to find meat here. It's not, it's not hard to find it in the grocery stores and, or in, uh, restaurants it's everywhere. I mean, you, I'm pretty sure you can go to any restaurant. I, yeah. I don't even think I've seen like a full vegan restaurant. I've just seen things that are like vegan options. Well, this is where your journalistic background is so important to decipher nutrition information, because this is what's out there is the difference between causation and correlation. We do a very poorly done study that got taken out of context. We see lots of different things. We assume it's one of those things and we assume it's the food. So let's go around and tell people that these blue zones are where people live the longest. Let's ignore the other places on the planet where people live a very long time, if not longer, who, who Mm -hmm. eat plenty of meat. And it's like, okay, the blue zone, 
now is owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So cities in America can pay like several million dollars to get certified as a Blue Blue Zone Project city. So Fort Worth, Texas is a Blue Zone Project. Imagine that. The Blue Zone diet that they recommend has different aspects, like 10 different aspects, but the amount of meat that they recommend in one month is five servings of a two-ounce piece of meat, which is the size of a golf ball. And Fort Worth? That that's it, it, for you to follow the blues, the quote unquote branded blue zone diet is five servings in a month, in one month of a two ounce piece of meat. And again, that would equate to about a golf ball size of fat and protein. Can you tell me why that might be a really bad idea to try? Yeah. And I would not, I do not think that anyone here is do, is doing that. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, but like, for that's not, yeah, that's not a normal thing. And that's definitely not a normal thing in Texas. Like that is not happening in Texas. <laughs> if you're, if you're listening and not watching, you're missing out. Jess's eyes are like as wide as dinner plates right now. Like, oh, how is that even possible? Yeah, I didn't even know it was no. possible to eat that low amount of eggs. They also give you, they say you can have uh, a dozen eggs. I think it's three eggs a week. So a dozen eggs a month. Yeah, that's crazy. it's crazy. For a blue zone? Yeah, for a blue zone, the, the the promoted quote unquote blue zone diet. And so and they're just telling people to eat that way, but they're not making sure people are. So people could still be eating meat, but those are the guidelines so that according to the guidelines, they're in blue zone. But people could still be just eating a ton of red meat. Great point. I don't know what their curriculum exactly is. But yes, if you pay, you get listed as a blue zone project city and then they come in or the city like commits to health education or, you know, nutrition education, which is all the wrong education anyway. And yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any way to, you know, take brisket away from a Texan. Um, so I don't know how they're validating it. I think it's just something you pay for the accreditation. They come in and do some education and that's kind of it. Whether people change or not, I, I don't know. I don't know what metrics they use or what they measure. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I thought that was just absolutely bananas. And I so much appreciate your observations having been there. I would be very nervous going to a place like that based on what I've heard and what people talk about, but it sounds absolutely wonderful. And sounds like you have no issue getting the food that you need. No, we, we did we had a harder time finding meat in Japan in mainland wow. than here. Wow. Yeah. Here so we found plenty of options. Yeah. So interesting. Well, again, I really appreciate that observation. I've got one last question from you. This is a question I generated from listening to you on another podcast. I just discovered this podcast. They just got started. I want to say it's the primal side podcast and, um, mm-hmm. I, it, it's really good. I'm really excited to see where that goes. And I think the host does a great job. So big shout out to them. We'll tag them in the show notes. Um, but, but it was a question that was given to you that said, do you think it's your fault that people become obese? Do you think it's, it's it's people's fault that they become obese? And you had a very interesting way of answering the question. I'm not sure if you did this consciously or unconsciously, but I love that you did it. You changed the word. You didn't use the word fault as much as you use the word responsibility. And I love that concept. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that from, I think it's Mark Manson who wrote the book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. The difference between fault and responsibility. And the idea is that if you find a baby on your porch, that's not your fault. But... You damn well better believe that that is your responsibility. And those two things are different. Those words are different. So can you, can you talk about, did you answer that question in that conscious way? Or can you talk about the difference in, in your opinion between fault and responsibility? Yeah, I, I think I answered it consciously um, to where I, because that is what I believe. I believe that it is your responsibility. I have a very, again, I, we talked about in the beginning, I'm polarizing. So I have a very polarizing opinion on this to where, 
I believe that it's all of our own, all of our, our all of ours, <laughs> for English is hard, um, all of our responsibility to make choices based on what we think is best. So the whole social media thing where you follow an influencer and then you do what they say because they are an influencer and that means something. Like I, if someone, like Paul Saladino is always the example that comes up. If someone follows Paul Saladino and decides to eat like Paul Saladino and is not Paul Saladino, in my opinion, that is 100% their fault and not Paul's fault. And not a lot of people, people get mad at me for saying that, but who you follow, who you listen to, and what you decide to do with the food, the food you're eating or the actions that you take and think and stuff, I think is your responsibility. I think there are like factors that come into play of, um, if you're being lied to, if you're being manipulated, things like that. Um, but overall, I think it's your responsibility to be cognizant that there's people out there that will try to scam you and will try to mislead you and that are lying to you. So I, I, it is my opinion that we all need to be more conscious of what we are listening to, who we are listening to, who are, who we are trusting. Um, because I mean, there are like, there are people out there listening to vegan gurus and trying the vegan diet. And I don't think that that's necessarily the vegan guru's fault. Like it, you, you need to look into that more. Does I, I don't know. I feel like I, I have a very strong opinion about that. And a lot of people don't think I'm right, but I don't know. I just, I think instead of blaming the influencer, I think we need to encourage people to make better choices instead of, because if you, if you just blame an outside factor, instead of taking the responsibility on for yourself and researching more and looking into it, then you go through life, like, and you can just blame other people. I don't know. I'm not making sense right now, but no, you're making perfect I? sense. That's a great <laughs> answer. I, I knew you would answer it in that way. And I'm really glad that you do because I agree. When somebody sits down in front of me for an initial consultation and they're telling me all the ways that they are broken and all the meds that they're on and how they've tried the diet, they've tried all the diets, they've done all the things, they've eaten all the kale and all that stuff. I, I feel that kind of same way. Like that none of that has been your fault. You have been given really bad advice, but but it's 2023. People can get information. They can listen to podcasts. These are free. This is how I got all of my information. I did not learn about true proper nutrition from the nutrition textbook behind me. I learned it through conversations. And I, I just, I think that's a really good way to look at it and good way to end this conversation is just by saying like, like it's not your fault. It is your responsibility and responsibility is triggering and it's empowering. It gives you the power mm -hmm. to do what you did and get out of a really bad situation by what you said. Like, when are you so sick of being sick that you will do something different and unconventional and listen to, you know, crazy Ro Joe Rogan podcast with this doctor and, and you'll wow. find you, you have a chance to find healing by doing something different. So I really appreciate that. And I love your message. And I love the way you answer that question. Jess Randall, where yeah. would you like to, uh, to have people go to follow you and connect with you and your work? Yeah, I mean, on my Instagram is where I'm most active, and it's just jesslyn.randall. Uh, and then Carnivore Revolution, like you said at the beginning, is where 
me and my friend Serena do fun interviews and make food and things like that. They're so great. I love them all. Your content is amazing. Like I said, if you're listening to this, go to those places right now and subscribe uh, because you do such a great job. And yeah, I, you're you're bringing this message out and in, into people's awareness who might not be able to get this message. And I just so much appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time very early morning where you are to be on our show today. We really love and appreciate you and your work. And thank you again so very much for appearing today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. <laughs> also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients, and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.